Healthcare Today is produced and paid for by the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to WDEV at RadioVermont.com. Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com And Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers, and this is Healthcare Today. We're going to be talking today about common eye problems uh, in the field of ophthalmology, and we're going to be talking to two ophthalmologists or eye specialists from the famed Massachusetts Eye and Ear Clinic in Boston. Dr. Matthew Gardner and Dr. Grayson Armstrong. Dr. Armstrong will be on with us the first half hour and Dr. Gardner the second half hour. We'd like to hear about what are some of the common eye problems they treat and also some of the advances in their field. If you have questions or comments about eye care, please do call us during this hour at 802-244-1777. Again, that's 802-244-1777. So let me introduce Dr. Grayson Armstrong, who's on the phone with us. Dr. Armstrong uh, got his MD degree from Brown University Medical School. He did his residency in ophthalmology at Harvard and was also the chief resident there. And he also got an MPH or Master's in Public Health from Harvard School of Public Health and subsequently worked on helping Syrian refugees with their uh, eye disease and eye problems. Dr. Armstrong, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you can hear me okay, Dr. Myers. I can certainly hear you, and I think I think our listeners can. Thank you. Well, perfect. Let me let me start by asking this: um, the past two years, uh, of course, during the COVID pandemic, we've seen a big uh, upsurge in telemedicine uh, or telehealth uh, because uh, offices were often closed for direct patient care because of the uh, uh, fear of uh, the COVID. I I see by your biography that you do have an interest in telemedicine. It did occur to me, though, that uh, ophthalmology in particular might be a field where that is difficult uh, because certain eye exams must be difficult to do over over a screen uh, when you're not with a patient. And obviously, any of the uh, procedures that you do are, are impossible. Can you tell us a little bit about how telemedicine has been used and how COVID has impacted the general care of people with eye problems? Absolutely. This is something I'm really passionate about. You mentioned at the beginning that I, uh, I worked with Syrian refugees to improve their eye care, and that's actually where my passion for telemedicine was born out of. In war zones, it's really hard to get eye care or really any specialty care for patients at the time of need. And so if we can use technology to bridge that gap and provide care to you know, Syrian refugees in the middle of a war zone or right to our own communities in our own backyard here in Boston or Vermont, then, yes, I think we're doing something right by people. 
during the COVID pandemic, people were scared to come in person for their eye care. And if you remember back, one of the whistleblowers in China that first talked about the disease was an ophthalmologist, and he unfortunately uh, passed away from COVID disease. And so during the eye exam, we take very special um, tools that magnify the eye like a microscope, and we look at it in high precision to look for eye, eye problems. Telemedicine can replicate some of that. It can't replicate it all just yet, but there are a lot of really amazing technologies that are being created right now to, to enable that to happen. But I can tell you that the majority of things that we see nowadays can actually be done um, by telemedicine in some way, shape, or form. Well, I'm fascinated by the work you did with Syrians. Tell us a little bit about that and, and, and how telemedicine helped you. So when I was abroad in Jordan um, helping Syrian refugees, a lot of patients were coming across um, the border with eye trauma and facial trauma. And with something as simple as a photograph or a video, getting information to a remote ophthalmologist to try to figure out what to do next is sometimes all you really needed. Should they receive surgery right away? Or can this wait and we can see them in a couple days? And that alone is, is a big deal, the triage aspect of the telemedicine care in, in abroad. And right now, I, I serve as the director of the eye emergency room at Mass Eye. You can imagine we see a lot of really crazy things here. But if I have the ability to triage what's happening at an outside doctor's office and give them advice on what's going on before the patient gets to us, then I think it serves the same purpose. One of the common uh, uh, exams that ophthalmologists do is a, a dilated eye exam in which drops, medicated eye drops are put in. I'm sure people are aware of this to, to uh, dilate or enlarge their pupils so that uh, the uh, ophthalmologist can see the fundus more clearly. How does that work in, in telemedicine? <laughs> so beyond just dilating patients so that they get blurry and, and leave not being able to see, we, we do it for a purpose, looking in the back of the eye. We look for things like glaucoma and diabetic changes in the back of the eye. But we're very fortunate in our field to have a lot of cameras that can take pictures of the back of the eye, and most of them don't actually require you to be dilated in the first place. So an example of telemedicine for this area, uh, if I have a camera set up, in a community health center or a, a primary care office close, uh, closer to the patients than I am, and they send me the photo, then they can, uh, I can remotely evaluate the eye and figure out if they have any changes like glaucoma or diabetic retinopathy. And we're actually doing that here in Boston. You know, Massachusetts is a pretty big state. New England is pretty large. And we have patients that will send photos uh, from their primary care offices to us, and we'll look at them to see if they have any disease. And most of the time they don't. About 20% of the time, it's worth them coming in person, but that means that 80% of the patients can actually stay home and not need an eye exam. One of the things I noticed uh, during my residency when I looked at what the ophthalmologists were doing was that they had more technology and more toys, as it were, than any other specialty. Um, it's a uh, highly developed field in that regard te technologically. It's true. We have a lot of really fun toys, and that's part of why I love it so much. It's like going in and playing every day with gadgets and gizmos. The uh, the toys we have are pretty advanced nowadays, and I mentioned the fact that we have cameras that can take pictures of the back of the eye without dilating. That's helpful for patients because they don't leave blurry, but it's helpful for us too because those same pictures now, um, we've all heard of this kind of talk of artificial intelligence and what that's capable of. 
it seems like another worldly idea, but artificial intelligence can actually be used to look at that photo and tell us if there's disease. And there are companies that now exist and there's devices that exist that can do that as good, if not sometimes better than I can. And so they can detect disease, tell you whether you need to see an eye doctor, and you know, the computer does a pretty good job at it. So we're lucky to live in a day and age where new tools and technologies are uh, at the forefront. And ophthalmology is one of those cool fields that has it all. How commonly is that artificial intelligence being used, for example, at your uh, mass, at uh, Massachusetts Eye and Ear? Well, it's not used as much in our building because we have so many eye doctors around that we can look in the eye and tell for ourselves whether there's something going on. The artificial intelligence, though, is starting to be used in primary care offices and internal medicine offices and endocrinology offices. Those are places where patients with diabetes would show up or concern for glaucoma would show up. And a simple picture is fast to do. And uh, the doctor that's there doesn't have to have any real knowledge of ophthalmology because the computer does the work for them. And if there's anything wrong, then they can always send that patient in to see somebody like me. Along with the work that you did in Jordan in terms of the triage work you mentioned, um, it seems to me that ophthalmology is one of those specialties of, in branches of medicine where you can, or ophthalmologists can go to a, a we'll say, an undeveloped country uh, where there's not many eye specialists, and in a period of a few days or a week, they can do any number of, for example, cataract surgeries or other uh procedures which can change a person's life. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Have you been involved in We're some of those missions? Field. I have. So even when I was a trainee, I got to go to India and I got to go to Italy. And I'm hopefully after this whole pandemic is over, I'll continue to be able to travel. But going into these communities and helping with the eye care there, the great thing is uh, maybe you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, it used to be that the doctors like myself in the United States would fly in and help perform a lot of the surgeries and do a lot of the care on the ground. Nowadays, it's shifted a little bit where the doctors that are already there are so good that they actually train us because they see a lot of the complex stuff. In the United States, we're lucky to catch diseases early and we're able to treat things before they get too bad. But in, you know, in remote India, they may not have that luxury, so they get more advanced disease that has really really complex surgery requirements. So additionally, you know, when we go to these places, we try to train the the systems so that the whole healthcare system in that area is built up and the eye doctors that are local have better skills so that when we leave, we don't, you know, we, we leave them with the skills that they need to continue doing the care and they don't rely on us alone. There are also certain diseases in some of these countries that we essentially never see in this country, parasitic diseases, for example, uh, in Africa, uh, that can cause blindness. It's true. We're lucky to, to be in a country where the treatments are so good and our public health system is so good that we don't see a lot of blinding diseases like uh, river blindness or um, tuberculosis in the eye. These things are incredibly common abroad, and in fact, there are entire clinics in them. I got to see more patients with those two diseases in one day than I've seen in my entire career otherwise. So they really do some amazing work over there, and they're amazing physicians. And um, going there is just as educational for me as it is for them. Well, I, we appreciate the, the efforts you're making in that regard, and particularly with the Syrian refugees. Um, Thank you. 
You mentioned that you are uh, head the emergency ophthalmology service. Um, tell us a little bit about or describe some of the mo- more common eye emergencies that you will be called upon to see in the emergency department. Happy to do so. I, you know, the eye emergency room at Mass Eye and Ear, for anyone that ever needs it, is open 24-7, 365 overnight and on the weekends. So we're always available for anyone that needs any help. We get a lot of transfers, and we see a lot of patients that have accidentally hit their eye, maybe playing sports, things like golf balls or baseballs or basketballs and or elbows. Those, obviously, you have the risk of bruising and bone fractures around the face. And we can fix those. We have the specialists that can repair the fractures and help with the bruise of the eye. Um, the really scary stuff that no one really likes to hear about. So I'll, I'll spare a lot of the details. But if you have a major um, puncture of the eye, like a nail or something, that we see that too. And we can fix it. And we have a lot of experience with fixing those things. We never wish it on anybody, but we have the experience to handle it. And then the opposite end of the spectrum is true too. It's... Uh, There's a lot of things that patients get worried about, like flashing lights in their eyes and floaters that are new or a bump on the eyelid or a red eye. And if you have any questions, you should you should feel free to come in and let us know what's going on. But some of the more common things that we see, especially now that people are wearing masks more often, are styes and blepharitis and dry eye. And so that can make your eye have a big bump on it, an eyelid um, that's kind of red and swollen in a focal area or maybe the eye just feels sandy and gritty all day and it gets kind of red and irritated and a little blurry. Those things we're happy to see too, but um, even though it does come into our emergency room, it's generally not an emergency that needs to be treated right away. We're happy to to help those patients through and educate them as well. Can you just tell us briefly how you would uh, approach a patient who had a nail in the eye? Oh, man. Well, I think it goes without saying we need to get the nail out. <laughs> we we kind of carefully remove it, and we uh, stitch up the eye very carefully as well, and then we, uh, we do that all while the patient's asleep, of course. And once they wake up, we, we see how they heal over the next couple of days. And generally, those things do cause a lot of blurry vision, and the vision doesn't always come back. But you'd be surprised. Sometimes we can really get some amazing outcomes and get people back to to baseline or close to baseline, even with something as bad as something like a nail in the eye. It takes a lot of care, a lot of specialized care. And really, for the entire New England area, Massachusetts Eyeneers Emergency Room serves as the major trauma referral for all eye stuff. So if you did have an eye emergency that severe, we'd recommend coming to us so that we can help take care of it for you. We have a lot of experience with that. Perhaps a, a, a more common, uh, less obviously dramatic, but still more common uh, problem would be retinal detachment uh, and also something called posterior vitreous uh, detachment. Can you tell us about those and how you would treat them? Of course. So for those of you that are listening, um, the eyeball, the way I describe it, is basically like a water balloon, all right? So it has to stay kind of plumped up, and in the back of that water balloon, there's a lot of jelly. The jelly fills the eye, and we call it the vitreous, which is just a fancy word for jelly of the eye. And that vitreous, as we get older, naturally starts to shrink down and liquefy, kind of like a, a grape turning into a raisin, just kind of shrinks. The funny thing is the eyeball doesn't change shape, but the jelly inside does. So as that jelly shrinks, like down to a raisin size, it kind of tugs away and pulls away from the inside of the eye. 
The inside of the eye, though, is also lined by something called the retina. The retina is basically nerve tissue that connects to the brain and helps us see. It doesn't know how to think. It doesn't know how to feel, but it does know how to see really well. So whenever that jelly pops off the sides of the eye wall, it pulls on the retina, and it starts to cause some flashing lights. So patients sometimes will notice these flashing lights off to the side, or they'll notice some new little floaters. And what that is is the jelly floating inside. They'll see the shadow of it moving around, the floaters. And when it tugs on the retina, they're seeing the flashes because, again, the retina only knows how to see. So when it gets tugged on, gets tugged on it, it flashes. So when that happens, it's called a posterior vitreous detachment, or basically it means the jelly has pulled away from the side of the eye. It happens to everyone at some point in their life. But very rarely, maybe 3 to 5% of the time, when that jelly pulls off the inside of the retina, it pulls a little too hard or it's attached a little too firmly and it pops a little hole or tears a little tear in the retina. And that can also cause a lot of flashing and floating floaters in the eyes. And we really do need to treat that right away. Um, if it gets bad enough and your retina has a little tiny tear or a little hole in it, it can actually cause something called a retinal detachment. And that's where the inside layer that sees the retina peels away from the inside of the eyeball and it kind of detaches, you know? So a retinal detachment means the retina is kind of free floating and it's not able to see anymore. That's an emergency. And we really do need to treat that uh, generally within uh, a couple days, sometimes right away. And we want to preserve people's vision and fix it as fast as we can, because that can be a big deal. So any patient that's having a, a ton of new flashes in the eye or a lot of new black little floating dots, or worse yet, like a big black curtain that's coming over their vision that they can't see through, you should come in right away and see an eye doctor. And again, we're always open here in Mass Eye so we're happy to see you. Important information. Um, thank you. Now, you mentioned the vitreous over time uh, begins to um, dry out or recede. Uh, in terms of general eye health, um, are there any vitamins, uh, along with regular eye exams, obviously, but are there any vitamins or foods that are um, particularly helpful to, to maintain good eye health? A lot of patients ask me this, and for most patients, the answer is no. Um, if you're overall healthy and you have a little bit of exercise, a good diet, um, you take care of any medical issues that you have like high blood pressure or diabetes, then your eyes should be okay without specific vitamins for the eyes. There is one exception. Um, there's a condition called age-related macular degeneration, or AMD for short. And this macular degeneration is just a, a change that happens in some people but not others. We don't really know why. But when it happens, if it gets bad enough, it does have a risk of vision loss, and there are special vitamins that have been found to slow that disease down. Um, if you do have macular degeneration and you're recommended of taking these vitamins, then if you take them every day, it's been shown to decrease the risk of losing any vision from that specific disease. So that's really the only exception to the rule. Uh, growing up, I was heard often, maybe when parents wanted us to eat fish, that fish would help us see better eating fish and also, uh, of course, vitamin A, carrots. Um, I, I wasn't fond of carrots, but, but occasionally I would eat them to, <laughs> so I could see better. Was that uh, old wives' tale or true? Well, I think it might have been a tale told to get you to eat those carrots and the fish. But, you know, I think that in general, like I said, if you're getting enough vitamin A in the world generally, you probably don't need to eat extra. And if you have enough uh, fish 
just generally in your diet to stay healthy. You don't need to eat an overabundance, but it's not going to hurt, that's for sure. And um, your eyes need vitamins just like the rest of the body does. So as long as you're staying healthy overall, it's probably fine. Color blindness. Um, how common is it and, and what is it? Oh, man, that's a great question. So color blindness. People have probably seen or read about color blindness online and seen videos of people that wear these special glasses to give some color vision back. The uh, When people are colorblind, in most cases, it just means that one of the three primary colors, their eye isn't really good at seeing. And, it, it, you know, they still see. They can see street signs. They can see stoplights. And they can see your face in the computer screen. But everything just is missing one of the primary big colors. And it just changes the hues of the world. Um, it's generally in, in men. And it's generally a genetic condition. And it's not something that people even notice until somebody tends to check it later in life. So it very rarely, if ever, causes any problems for people. Um, so it's something that we see rarely. It's not super common. I'd say maybe I'd have to guess. Can people drive like safely? Can they thousand. detect a red light, for example, from a green? So even if people don't have the ability to see the red versus the green, per, for example, they'll still know that the top light is the red one and the bottom one is the green one and the one in the middle means that you better slow down so it's uh it's possible to get by without seeing the colors because of the pattern recognition and the way that we perceive the world a stop sign is an example if you see a big hexagonal sign with the word stop it doesn't matter if you saw the red or not you're still able to to navigate in the world we do have a caller uh ray uh is on the line ray thanks for calling your question yeah, my question is, uh, I have retinitis pigmentosa, and I've had it for years, and I just wonder, has there been any help for those people with my condition? Well, quite a while ago, the Oxford University had a study, and they were looking like they had a cure, but it, uh, the grant for the study failed up, and I haven't heard much lately, so just wondered, has there been anything new for us guys with that is pigmentosa. Thank you, Ray. And yes, that is not an, that's a fairly common uh, disease. And tell us about that, Dr. Armstrong. Sure. Retinitis pigmentosa, for those on the line listening, thank you for the question, Ray, is uh, it's a genetic condition that causes you to lose your peripheral vision um, pretty dramatically so that you basically just have central tunnel vision and it kind of progresses over, over your lifetime. It's caused by a genetic um, abnormality kind of in, in people's DNA. And I think that you're, you'd be lucky to, to know that we live in a day and age where there is a ton of work being done and we, we actually have the ability to replace the genes in the eye. Um, genetic changes in the eye are, are really the first place in medicine where we've been able to make a big impact and, and cure genetic diseases. Um, the first FDA-approved drug to replace a gene that's defective was actually inside of the eye. So there's a ton of work underway to treat retinitis pigmentosa. The funny thing is, and maybe not so funny, is that there's a lot of different genes that are associated with retinitis pigmentosa. So we kind of have to first figure out which one is the problem in each patient, and then we have to figure out how to replace each one of those in each patient. So over time, I do believe that we're going to find cures for every single one of them. Some of them are easier to fix than others, but it's already underway, Ray, and I do believe that in time there's going to be a lot of success in that space. 
the very first place, by the way, in the country that they treated a patient with that FDA-approved medication was here at Mass Eye and Ear. So you're lucky to have a hospital in the New England area that might be the the, uh, the leading center for that. Yeah, let me just reinforce that, for that for some of these conditions, uh, if you're not involved in the study, it all it takes is one phone call, I'm sure, to call a place like Massachusetts Eye and Ear to f- hear about what studies they have and if you might be eligible because uh, you might well help not only yourself but others by being part of such a study. We do have a call from Forbes in our last couple of minutes before the break. Forbes, your question. Hi, how are you? Quick question. With everyone involved in electronic media today, what's what's the uh, informational aspect of protecting the eyes, or is there a, is there a danger there? That's a really good question. That's a great question. I hear that multiple times a day. So. I guess the real question is, if you're looking at online computers and your phone or a tablet or an iPad, is that harmful for the eye? And luckily, in most situations, unless the screen is so bright that it's damaging, which is rare, I can't imagine that being the case, the answer is no, it's not going to hurt you. So you're able to look at the computer and you're able to watch TV and you're able to look at your phone, and you shouldn't be worried about it hurting your eyes' long-term health. You, uh, I've also heard about blue light blocking glasses. And I just wanted to reassure people that while there is evidence that blue light blocking glasses helps people fall asleep faster because it kind of dims out the, the stimulating effect of the bright light of a screen, otherwise there's no real real risk of anything. There's only one exception to that, and that's in young children. When you're really young and you look at computer screens a lot, it can make you more nearsighted and can make you need glasses more. And so in young children, we recommend that if you're going to be on the computer a lot, especially nowadays where children are taking all their classwork on Zoom they or on the computers, we recommend that they still get some outdoor time. They still get some time and activities away from the screen. Otherwise, their glasses prescription might keep getting stronger and stronger. But that was a good question. It was. And you've had a terrific amount of wonderful information. I want to thank Dr. Armstrong. He's going to have to go back and take care of patients now, but thank you for all the care you do here and overseas. We'll be thank back you. after the break. Pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Lewis Myers here, welcoming you back for the second half of Healthcare Today, in which we're talk- looking at eye care and, and eye problems. Our second guest today, also from the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Clinic, is Dr. Matthew Gardner. Dr. Gardner got his MD degree from the University of Pennsylvania. He, I believe, remained at the University of Pennsylvania, did two residencies, first in internal medicine and then in ophthalmology, and did a subsequent fellowship at Mass General. He has twice been elected or voted Teacher of the Year. Dr. Gardner, welcome. Hello there. Good afternoon. Um, we've just been talking to one of your colleagues, Dr. Um, Armstrong, uh, going over lots of different issues, and there's a lot more to cover. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, we're going to hit some co- uh, kind of rapid-fire common diagnoses. Perhaps the most common diagnosis is cataracts. Uh, right. I believe cataracts are the most common operation done in the Medicare population. Um what is a cataract, and, and tell us what cataract surgery can accomplish. Sure. So a cataract is a cloudiness <clears throat> to the lens inside the eye. So the eye is like a camera. There's a lens in the front of the eye, and just like 
the camera has a film in the back, the retina is what receives the light as it passes through the lens, and it makes a clear picture. So if that lens inside the eye becomes cloudy, foggy, then that's a cataract. And so if it gets bad enough so that people can't see well to do the things that they want to do during the day, be it driving or reading, then those people often opt for surgery to get it fixed. And, and this, tell me, tell us a little bit about the procedure. What do you do during that during a cataract surgery? So there are many different ways to do it. The more common way now that we do it is what's called phacoemulsification. So that's a procedure where one uses a small ultrasound probe. It's almost like a, a needle that is introduced into the eye, and the lens is broken up into little pieces. And those pieces are aspirated out. They're sucked out through the same device. So you get rid of the lens, and then you put a new lens implant, a plastic lens, right in where the old lens had been. So that procedure is by far the most commonly performed way to do cataract surgery these days. It's done under local anesthesia, typically with some sedation, and uh, extremely well-tolerated, very safe procedure. And how long does the average cataract procedure last? For the average person, if it's uncomplicated, it usually takes about 15 minutes. Now, one issue that has come up in in the medical literature, and you may be best uh, uh, positioned to talk about this because you you're uh, did training in both internal medicine and cataracts and uh, ophthalmology, is mm-hmm. that um, some facilities still require a full pre-op physical before a cataract. Uh, surgery and number of inter, uh, national anesthesiology and organizations, for example, have have uh, stated that that's really not necessary, given that it's basically a local procedure done under minimal sedation and it takes about 15 minutes. What's the policy at Mass uh, Eye and Ear, and what are your thoughts about this? Should people have to go and get a whole extensive physical before they have a cataract surgery? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. So there have been many papers over the last 10 to 20 years that have shown pretty decisively that you really don't have to go through the whole song and dance in terms of history and physical and the kind of clearance that we used to do for cataract surgery, that it's so safe, as you said, so well tolerated that a lot of the protocols, the procedures we used to go through for clearance, we just don't do anymore. So in particular, a lot of the routine blood work, the chest x-rays, the EKGs, all the things that we used to do that you would do for most other surgeries, they're very good studies that have shown it's really not necessary. So it depends on the patient, too. It depends on the patient's age, any underlying medical conditions. But for the average person, we really do very little. There's a, a nurse who calls the patient a week before just to talk about their medical history, and if everything is very straightforward, without any complicating medical problems, usually there's almost no workup that's required. Well, Sometimes a letter from the primary care doctor is helpful, but yes, very little is done for most patients. I certainly appreciate that Mass uh, Eye and Ear is moving, has moved, moved into the 21st uh, uh, century on that, on that regard. Um, another common, maybe not as common as cataract, but a common procedure is LASIK, L-A-S-I-K. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about LASIK? procedures and and how that can help people. So LASIK is otherwise known as it's a type of laser vision correction. There are many different ways to do it. Um, PRK is one. There's LASIK, LASIK, 
smile procedures, all these are procedures that are done in the outpatient setting in order to reshape the cornea so that you aren't as dependent upon glasses. So if people need glasses for distance, for example, that's the most common scenario, and they don't want to wear glasses anymore, then all you have to do is to reshape the cornea so you essentially are almost engraving your prescription onto the surface of the eye. So it's like having your contact lens almost sort of permanently shaped to your eyes. You're not implanting anything, but you're reshaping the front surface of the eye so that the light bends in a way that helps you to see more clearly. So the main purpose is to make people less dependent upon glasses or contacts. Unlike cataracts, which procedures, which usually go pretty flawlessly, there are some potential long-term complications from LASIK. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so LASIK also is very well-practiced and generally very safe. So I, I wouldn't say that it's a risky procedure by any means, but just like with any procedure, there's always a possibility that the incisions that are made or the laser treatments could go awry. Sometimes people have more chronic inflammation that can last for weeks or months. Sometimes people have glare and halos at night, for example, with driving. Sometimes people very rarely can get infections in the cornea after the procedure, but the vast majority of people go through it without any hiccups at all. Our number is 802-244-1777. We had some callers in the first half hour with some very helpful questions. And again, we're at 802-244-1777. So, Dr. Gardner, you, as I mentioned, are, are trained in both internal medicine and uh, ophthalmology, which is perfect training for dealing with situations like glaucoma and diabetic uh, retinopathy and other diabetic complications of eye problems um, because that uh, is treated both by both internists and family practitioners, endocrinologists, as well as ophthalmologists. Um, tell us a little bit. About, tell us, talk to us about glaucoma. What is glaucoma, and why is it important, and how do we treat it? So, glaucoma is a disease truly of the optic nerve. So, we think of it as a eye pressure problem, and it generally is but it is an optic nerve problem that we think results from pressure that is too high inside the eye. So some people can have normal pressure and still have glaucoma, but most people who have glaucoma have higher than normal pressures. So for those people, if we notice that pressures are too high in the office during routine exam, or if we notice that the optic nerve has an unusual appearance, a configuration that is suspicious for glaucoma, we often treat those patients with eye drops to lower the eye pressure so that the optic nerve is protected so that long-term, and by long-term I mean years because it's a very slow disease, long-term the vision is preserved. Typically with glaucoma, people tend to lose more of their peripheral vision, and because you don't use your peripheral vision as much as your central vision, sometimes those people can go for many years undiagnosed and just have no idea that they are suffering from it. So having a good routine eye exam to check the optic nerve appearance and the eye pressures is very important for glaucoma prevention. You mentioned it tends to be s- slow progressing and, and a chronic type uh, disease. Are there gl- emergencies associated with glaucoma? Yes, that's a good point. So there are 
two main forms of glaucoma. There's the so-called open-angle glaucoma, which is the most common in the United States, which is slow and relatively asymptomatic, meaning you just don't notice that you have it. The other flip side of glaucoma is the narrow-angle or closed-angle glaucoma, wherein there can be a very abrupt onset of high pressure, and when that happens, there's an attack of angle closure such that the pressure rises to a point causing pain, blurriness, and sometimes even nausea and vomiting. Patients will often have a headache, eye pain, and a lot of blurriness. So for those patients who are at risk for narrow angles, yes, there can be an acute rise that can cause uh, dangerous glaucoma that has to be treated the same day. How would you treat that emergency? So we usually start with rounds of eye drops to try to lower the pressure. At the same time, we often get them into the laser suite, and there's a particular laser procedure that we do that allows the fluid to move to bypass the normal drainage pathways. So we do that to release the fluid in a way where it's accumulating and causing that abrupt high rise in the pressure. So typically, it's a combination of drops and laser surgery. Is there a genetic component to glaucoma? There's absolutely a genetic component, and we have many researchers at Mass Eye that are working on this. We think that it may be as high as 25 or 50 percent in terms of the genetic contribution, but we just don't know exactly. There's probably a host of genes, dozens of genes that contribute to the risk. So in the future, we may be able to have panels that we can check for patients to look for genetic predilections for glaucoma. So it's still an area of active research. But there's no question we always ask patients when we think they're at risk for glaucoma if they have a first-degree relative, meaning mother, father, brother, sister, who has suffered from glaucoma. In terms of the research that's being done at places like Mass uh, uh, Eye and what would you say is one of the most exciting potential avenues uh, ahead for glaucoma? So one of the biggest issues with glaucoma is that, unfortunately, when the damage occurs, we don't think much of that optic nerve injury can be fixed. So if patients go far and they haven't been treated, they present too late, then they have pieces of their vision that are missing, parts of their visual field that are gone. And that occurs because of the optic nerve damage. The nerve has suffered from that high pressure. So one of the greatest uh, hopes is that in the future we can use stem cell therapies or other ways to reconstitute the optic nerve, to help the optic nerve to grow back. So these are things that <clears throat> may be able to um, be pursued over the next five to ten years. We have people actively working with um, treatments such as this, but the optic nerve is very hard to fix. But if we can try to regrow some of those nerves, and make those connections because the nerve is what connects the eye to the brain, then we can try to solve some of those um, those the patients who have permanently lost some of their vision. But it's a very difficult process, and we have a lot of smart people working on it. And again, I would just mention that if uh, for people who are interested who have some of these diseases, such as glaucoma, you might want to contact a place like Mass, Massachusetts Eye and Ear to see what studies are open are open, and if you might potentially be eligible. Obviously, it always takes time and energy to be part of a study, but it may not, but it may help you as well as others. Um, Dr. Gardner, as an 
internist and as an ophthalmologist, you're, you're perfectly placed to understand diabetes and all of the ways that diabetes can affect the eye. Can you talk a little bit about your diabetic patients and some of the eye conditions that, that diabetes impacts? So as probably most people know, diabetes affects the whole body. It can cause problems with the small vessels from the feet all the way up to the eyes. It can put people at risk for heart attacks and strokes. So because the eye has a whole host of small vessels, just the way the other parts of the body do, those small vessels often become affected by the high blood sugars. So there are several different levels of problems, pathology that people can have in their eyes with um, diabetic retinopathy. Some of the earliest things that we see as we look in the eye are little spots of bleeding, tiny, we call them microaneurysms or little blot hemorrhages. Sometimes we also see fluid deposits. We see lipid deposits. So typically when we see some of those early signs, there's often nothing to do, especially if it's just a few little pinprick hemorrhages that we see. We just warn the patient that the blood sugars are too high and you have to try to control them. We usually coordinate with the primary care doctor also to tell them that your patient probably should shoot for a lower um, blood sugar as they're trying to control it. So typically in that setting, if the patient controls their blood sugar, some of those early signs will go away and there shouldn't be any permanent damage. If there's fluid in the back of the eye, then sometimes we do other treatments, either laser treatments or injections, and those can usually be treated well and the patient will have no permanent damage. The more significant type of diabetic eye disease that can lead to more serious and long-term problems is what's called the neovascular complications of diabetes. So for those patients who have progressed beyond those first stages of the diabetic eye changes, you can get blood vessels that grow in an abnormal way. They grow in funny directions in the retina, up into the vitreous, into the gel of the eye, and they can bleed in more extensive ways that can cause problems. Obviously, the bleeding in the eye can cause blurring, but more importantly, it can cause scarring and sometimes retinal detachment. So it's that second phase that we want to prevent people from getting to. We want to intervene early when we see patients that have some of these little hemorrhages to prevent them from going on to that second stage. Uh, Diabetes is one of the most common causes for vision loss in this country, is it not? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, As we know, uh, as most people probably know already, the diabetes incidence has uh, been increasing, and especially type 2 diabetes is much more common. So screening these patients on an annual basis is essential. Do studies show that controlling blood sugar actually can prevent uh, some of these problems? Yes. Yeah, there's very good evidence that shows that having tight control prevents the diabetic retinopathy, the diabetic eye disease, and can long-term prevent people from having vision loss. Speaking of vision loss, let's. Uh, I think Dr. Uh, Armstrong talked a bit about macular degeneration, or maybe we did earlier in the half hour, I apologize, mm-hmm. but um, macular degeneration is also very common. Now, that is seen more in older people or as we get older. Um, what is it and what kind of work is being done to prevent or treat it? So, yeah, it's often referred to as age-related macular degeneration because it is much more common as people grow older. Um, there is a 
potentially a familial predilection for it as well. Um, it involves a whole uh, group of different findings. Typically, there are little yellow spots that occur in the back of the eye. <clears throat> Those are called drusen. In addition, there are pigmentary changes and sometimes atrophic areas. So little areas of the retina where the pigment has moved around and parts of the underlying structure of the retina have stopped working properly. So with those patients, they're also divided into two groups. There's sort of the dry and the wet type. The dry type is most often the early presentation where patients have the drusen and um, the pigmentary changes. If it progresses, sometimes it goes on to the wet stage where people, again, get some of these we call neovascular changes where the blood vessels grow in abnormal ways and that can cause bleeding and significant scarring in the back of the eye. The, uh, how do you treat it? So patients who usually present early with the, the non-neovascular, the early dry type of macular degeneration, we usually treat it with uh, dietary recommendations. So we often say to patients that have to have lots of uh, natural antioxidants, green leafy vegetables, but also there's a combination of vitamins that are called AREDS, A-R-E-D-S. And that comes from a series of studies, very large-scale X1 studies that showed that this particular combination of vitamins works to help slow the progression and potentially to stop people from progressing to the wet stage of the macular degeneration. There are new studies also that are coming out looking at other potential treatments for the dry macular degeneration, but a lot of what we do is monitoring. So we see them at least yearly, and we do retina scans to make sure you're not converting into the wet type. As we talk about some of these conditions such as glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, macular degeneration, there are ways which, as we've heard, we can slow the progression or sometimes even reverse it. But many people are left with impaired vision. Uh, obviously, other conditions as well can lead to low vision. There is something – there are low vision clinics and low vision aids, and I'm not sure people are as aware of that as, as they might be. Can you talk about what you do at Mass Eye and Ear for, for people, uh, sort of adjunctive therapies that would help with people who have chronically low vision? Yeah, so the the – old term for it was low vision. We call it now vision rehabilitation. And so many large ophthalmology departments, including Mass Eye has a very strong uh, vision rehabilitation program where we look to try to maximize the vision that the patient has. So that can be done with various types of um, glasses, magnifiers, um, also devices like closed-circuit TVs, there are many different ways to try to help patients do more of what they want to do. So, for example, if your main goal is to read more comfortably, you can have um, large stand magnifiers or the closed-circuit TVs, whereas if you want to be able to see distance better, there are things like telescopes that can be implanted into the glasses, made into the glasses to help people to see at distance better. So you really have to work with the patient to see what their goals are, but there's a whole world beyond just regular glasses that can really help people like this. In addition, there's physical therapy, occupational therapy, lots of different ways to try to help people adapt 
to some of their new visual problems. So really it is multidisciplinary in taking care of the eyes. In the couple of minutes we have left, let me just ask you, you, uh, you did do two residencies. I, I assume you started in internal medicine and probably went to ophthalmology. What, what prompted you to go into uh, ophthalmology after doing your residency in internal medicine? Well, it's a, it's a, a great question. I think uh, a lot of, if you ask most physicians, how did they choose their specialty? A lot of them will really have a rather circuitous route to where they arrived, and they didn't have a straight line necessarily from A to B to C. So as a medical student, I'd always liked ophthalmology and internal medicine, and I had a difficult time deciding which to do. And I first chose internal medicine and then really sort of missed the idea of ophthalmology and wanted to go on to to then pursue that as well. I liked the idea of doing procedures. I liked the satisfaction of surgical treatments for patients. I loved my interactions with patients while I was in internal medicine, and I didn't want to lose that by just going into surgery. So ophthalmology is this nice connection. It's this nice combination of medicine and surgery, so you can sort of have the best of both worlds. Well, the fact that you uh, were awarded Teacher of the Year twice, and I know that's that's a, really a, an honor uh, in, in academic settings, is sp- speaks to your your interest, your energy, and the sharing you've done with with others. I want to thank you for being here, um, and Dr. Uh, Armstrong before you, and, and the Mass Eye and Ear Clinic. I hope everyone will join us uh, next week. I want to remind people that Super Bowl Sunday is the highest number of drunk driving arrests and fatalities, so please be careful out there this weekend. See you next time. Thank you very much. Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by AgeWell Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com. The music for this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.